It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. It's Monday, December the 4th. PFT PM, 5-Down Territory Edition, reacting to the Monday that was in the National Football League and the Sunday that was before it. Obviously, some development since we wrapped up PFT Live at 9 a.m. Eastern Time this morning on NBCSN and NBC Sports Radio. Let's begin with the thing that we had flagged last night on Football Night in America. Rodney Harrison had some strong comments about it. A lot of people felt very strongly about the illegal hit that Patriots tight end Rob Gronkowski applied to Bill's cornerback, Tredavious White. Look, it was a, as Bill Belichick told Bill's coach Sean McDermott after the game into a hot microphone, it was a bullshit move. And it was, without question. Now, there were different angles. And one of the angles, it looked like it wasn't as violent as it did on other angles. But I'm not excusing it. I just think it was a weird kind of optical dynamic where there was one kind of horizontal view where he doesn't come down with that full and total weight. And thank God he didn't. He still hit Tredavious White hard enough to put him in the concussion protocol. And it was the forearm hitting the helmet and then the helmet hitting the ground. Double action. Tredavious White on the ground. Tredavious White doesn't see it coming. Clearly, totally unnecessary. The NFL has been about for the last decade or so limiting the number of unnecessary blows to the head. This was an unnecessary blow to the head against a defenseless opponent. And Rob Gronkowski needed to be suspended. I'm surprised he wasn't suspended two games because we saw that last week with Aqib Tlaib and Michael Crabtree. Suspend two gets reduced to one on appeal. We'll see now what happens on appeal. And I'm disappointed that Gronkowski is appealing it. I know he has the right to appeal it. And he has a lot of money at risk. More on that in a second. But I think that to give credence to the apology that we heard from Gronkowski after the game, he should not appeal the suspension. The team should go to him. Bill Belichick should go to him and say, Rob, take your medicine. You deserve to be suspended for a game. You deserve to not play. Now, of course, Belichick's not going to voluntarily be without one of his best players. And Gronkowski isn't voluntarily going to miss out on his salary. And also, to the extent that Rob Gronkowski was frustrated by the clutching and the grabbing and the uncalled penalties on Tredavious White and on the play that culminated in the illegal blow to the head, White was clutching and grabbing and holding. The frustration may have come from, in part, a clear financial incentive for Gronkowski to get as many catches and yards as possible. Remember back in May, the new contract that the Patriots gave Gronkowski, which was really a one-year band-aid, all based on incentives, an incentive to play, an incentive to play well. With three different tiers, $1 million, $3 million, and $5.5 million. Now, he hit the first level on Sunday. The first level gives him an extra million if he participates in 70% of the snaps for the year, catches 60% of the passes, and these are all or. So it's 70% of the snaps or 60 passes or 800 receiving yards or scores 10 touchdowns. Well, as of right now, 
He has 849 receiving yards. So he's hit that trigger. He'll get an extra million dollars. But he wants to get even higher up. He ultimately needs 80 catches or 1,200 receiving yards or 14 touchdowns or 90% of the snaps. Being suspended for a full game takes him off the pace to get 80 catches. 55 catches in 11 games, that puts him right on pace for 80 and 16. Now he's going to play 15. The yardage does not project to 1,200 by missing a game. So missing the game hurts his ability to get the full $5.5 million and also the frustration that he's feeling may at some level be rooted in the desire to max out his production so he can max out his compensation. We'd seen the guy play in every game so far this year. Now, a lot of it's dumb luck. The way he plays, he gets injured. Any injuries he's had this year, he's found a way to play through them. Remember there was a a vague leg injury. There was an injury that popped up fairly late that he had played. I think, did he miss one? They played 12 games, so he has missed one. So never mind. Don't mind me. My math is horrible. He did miss one game this year. He's played in 11. So ultimately, he's going to have, at most, uh, 14. 14. My math is improving, gradually. He missed the game against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So he was going to have his, this feeds in uh, feeds into my narrative a little bit better than than I thought actually it's a math error that I welcome bank error in my favor he needed to play in those final four games he needed nearly 100 yards a game in those final four games to get to 5.5 million now he also can get to the 5.5 million if he is the first team all pro but between Zach Ertz what other tight ends are having great years? Kelsey was. Travis Kelsey was. He had a big day on Sunday. See, I don't think you want to leave it up to the discretion of 50 voters who may or may not vote for you based on name recognition. You want to get to 1,200 yards or 80 receptions. And number one, that may explain why he was frustrated. Because even though the Patriots won, maybe he would have had an even bigger day. Maybe if he hasn't been held all year, he'd have even bigger numbers. And number two, missing a game for reasons other than injury makes it harder for him to get to his goal. None of it excuses what he did. And I really do think that he should not appeal. That would be a great gesture. That would give true weight to his apology. But he has every right to appeal and maybe he gets lucky. Maybe maybe the hearing officer says, all right, Gronk, you're just going to be fine. 50,000 or 100,000 or whatever. But but the NFL's had pretty good luck this year getting these suspensions upheld. And if Mike Evans' suspension was upheld, the Gronkowski suspension should be upheld. If Danny Trevathan's suspension was upheld Devontae, uh, on the Devontae Adams hit back in week four, I believe it was, the Rob Gronkowski suspension should be upheld. That's first down. And ultimately, look, does it matter to the Patriots? They're going to keep rolling. They're going to keep winning. 10-2, and two, they've won eight in a row. The defense has been incredible. Remember back when they were 2-2? Two and two? I said, give me the worst defense in the NFL. Give me one coach to fix it, and I'd take Bill Belichick. It'll be fine. They'll be fine, and they are fine, and they'll be fine without Gronkowski. They'll be fine without anyone except Tom Brady. 15 straight years with 10 or more wins. An amazing run. 
And they had one of those years, almost entire year, without Tom Brady, and they still won 11 games. Didn't make it to the playoffs that year, but Patriots just keep rolling. And even though they've never blown anyone out in a Super Bowl, doesn't it feel like they're going to go back and win the Super Bowl again? Doesn't it feel like that's where it's going to go? That's where it's going to be. Eli Manning and the Giants won't be there, so all the more reason to believe that the Patriots will get it done. Speaking of the Giants, let's move on to second down. Ben McAdoo out. Also, Jerry Reese out. See, I don't buy anything John Mara, the co-owner of the Giants, says about the reasons for the firing. He says the handling of Eli Manning had nothing to do with it, and I say baloney to you, Mr. Mara. I strenuously object, Mr. Mara. This was an anger firing. This was an, you've embarrassed us. We are a proud franchise. We like to peer down our nose at every other franchise out there, including the one, most specifically, that we share a stadium with. And you, Ben McAdoo, and you, Jerry Reese, have embarrassed us. You mishandled the situation last week. You didn't protect us from ourselves. See, that's one of the challenges of working for a billionaire. There are occasions where the billionaire is ultimately going to screw up and it is incumbent upon those who work for the billionaire to say, "Uh, excuse me, sir, you're about to step in a big giant pile of shit. Please move your foot or let me dive into it for you. And if you don't stop the boss from stepping in that big giant pile of feces, you end up getting thrown into it. That's how it works when you work for a billionaire. That's one of the occupational hazards. So every once in a while, there's going to be an opportunity to grab or otherwise intervene as that shoe is coming down into something really brown and smelly. And if you fail to protect that Bruno Mali. $2,000 loafer, you're going to have a problem. That's exactly what happened today. I don't care what anyone says. It's so obvious. Because they were going to keep both of these guys the whole year. We went through that three weeks ago. I was told very reliably that Ben McAdoo was in danger of being fired after the loss to the Giants. The Giants. To the 49ers. The San Francisco Giants. San Francisco 49ers. And... They came out the next day, the white puff of smoke appeared, lengthy statement that made it very clear they're going to ride this out. They're going to ride it out to the end of the season. Then came the Eli Manning debacle, and lo and behold, get rid of everybody. Getting rid of Reese is the clincher. Reese and McAdoo. Reese is gone because he just sat there as a passive observer when he should have been yelling and screaming, hey, guys, this is not the giant way. Hey, guys, this is not how we do this with Eli Manning. Hey, John, Steve, have you lost your minds? It's my job to help you find them. These guys are gone because they did not protect ownership from themselves. And now who's going to protect ownership from themselves when they make their next hire? Because the deeper problem here for the Giants is that less than two years ago, they decided that Ben McAdoo was a good idea to be the head coach. They decided the way to fix what was ailing the franchise was to fire Tom Coughlin, bump up Ben McAdoo, keep Jerry Reese in place, keep Steve Spagnuolo in place as defensive coordinator, and just keep moving forward. They thought that was a good idea. And apart from whether or not Coughlin was the only one who needed to go, the idea that McAdoo deserved a step to the next level. 
And he'd already been there with the team. They had been around him. They had been in a position to interact with him, to observe him, to get a feel for whether or not he gets it, to get a feel for whether or not he would be a suitable representative of that proud franchise as the head coach. They decided, the very people who will be deciding on who the next coach will be, these are the people who decided that Brill Cream Ben McAdoo should be the head coach of the New York Giants. He just turned 40 this year. He was with the Packers for eight years, and he brought that very unimaginative Green Bay Packers system-driven, we shall not deviate no matter what the game circumstances may suggest. It's system, system, system. He brought that same stubbornness to the Giants. He did well enough there as offensive coordinator for two years to get the head coaching job, and shame on Mara and Tish for not recognizing that he shouldn't have gotten the job. I know it sounds incredibly petty and superficial, but the day he showed up in that giant, ugly-ass David Burns stop-making-sense suit, it's fair to say. I mean, this is the Giants. This is New York. This is the top media market in the world. You show up for that press conference wearing a suit that is 10 sizes too big for you. And I don't care what the excuse is. Oh, I got a great excuse for that. I'm all about coaching, and I lost a lot of weight, and this is my only suit, and uh, look, I lost all this weight. It doesn't fit me. Sorry. I don't care about those things. I just care about coaching. Well, you better care about those things. And if it's a matter of delaying the introductory press conference for a day so you can go buy a suit that fits you or or that fits you better, not every suit fits everyone perfectly. Right? There's a little extra here, a little not enough there, a little maybe we can't completely buckle these pants. Maybe we got to inhale a little bit to get the button. Whatever the case may be. But to show up in that thing that made him look like a character as his first impression with most football fans. Most football fans don't know who Ben McAdoo is. Most Giants fans don't know who he is. The casual fans... All of a sudden, here he is. Oh, my God, what is he wearing? And from that moment, and I'll tell you what, the next time that that something like that happens, number one, I look forward to it. Number two, I'm going to say, remember Ben McAdoo. And, and I guarantee you, I guarantee you that if there's a coach who's hired by an NFL team and they're getting ready to do the press conference, and it turns out the only suit he has fit him before he lost 150 pounds or whatever the number was, somebody's going to say, we'll just do the press conference tomorrow. We got the whole offseason. We'll get you a suit that fits you. That was the first clue. Then the second clue was the inability to properly manage Odell Beckham Jr. Remember that was the big storyline last year? Is it any surprise in hindsight that Ben McAdoo was clueless when it came to managing Odell Beckham Jr.? And then the Brill Cream this year. Petty and superficial, but my God, that every day, and we had fun with this all year, but it wasn't just a bit. The idea that every day, because surely he doesn't go to bed with his head looking like that. Every day he gets out of bed and voluntarily dips the, the, the comb, is the word I'm looking for, into the goop 
and slathers it onto his head every day with no self-awareness. You have to have some self-awareness in order to survive as an NFL head coach. Ideally, it's useful to have a little self-awareness to survive, really, in any job. Any job that's in the public eye, you got to have a little self-awareness. Can't wear the giant suit, can't do the brill cream unless you can pull it off. Some people can pull it off. Pat Riley can pull it off. Ben McAdoo can't pull it off. The kid at the Thanksgiving night game who had the brill cream hair, he pulled it off. McAdoo can't. Stats can't. Stats tried to pull it off that day back in. He, he did it on Halloween. His 49ers, if they lose 11 games, he has to do the brill cream Ben McAdoo hair. He, he did it as a Halloween thing to try to diffuse it. Regardless, it doesn't work for him, and it doesn't work for McAdoo. We'll see if McAdoo still has that hairstyle when he resurfaces. I have a feeling when he does resurface, he will have a different hairstyle and his suit will fit. Now, where do the Giants go from here? I saw that Ernie Accorsi, former Giants GM, is going to be a consultant. And I'm never a fan of this because here's what happens. When you hire the consultant, you are automatically hiring a friend, relative, crony, buddy, colleague, whatever of that consultant. And they're in this mess because they've continued the Accorsi line of thinking. The best thing Accorsi ever did was get Eli Manning. And then Accorsi handed the baton to Jerry Reese. Accorsi hired Tom Coughlin, who begat Ben McAdoo. If you really want to turn the page for an organization that has badly lost its way, you do not hire Ernie Accorsi to be the consultant. But the problem is... The owners who had faith in Ben McAdoo hired Ben McAdoo. So they do need to be protected from themselves. They're going to trust Ernie Accorsi to protect them from themselves. See, this whole, I, I, the Giants don't fire people lightly. And Jerry Reese is only like the fourth GM they've had in like 80 years or something ridiculous like that. Reese was Accorsi's guy. Who are they going to find now? Ideally, they would break from the entire Accorsi lineage. The problem is, at this moment, John Mara and Steve Tisch, I doubt, trust their ability to know who to hire. Because they got it so badly with Ben McAdoo. They got it so wrong. Attach him to a lie detector and they'll admit it. Without that, they'll come up with some excuse or explanation. They got it so wrong. You got to be able to read people. You got to be able to get a good sense. You take them out to eat. You get them in that environment. You see how they interact with the waiter, the waitress, how they, how comfortable they are in their own skin. For a job like that, there's a lot of little clues you can pick up by just being around them. Just be around. Remember the whole Brock Osweiler thing when he went to sign with the Texans sight unseen? It's like, bring him in for five hours. Hang out. Get a feel for what kind of a person he is. Take him out to a meal. You can learn so much from somebody by going to a meal at a nice restaurant. You can learn so much. Let the guard down a little bit. You see how they they get around. You see how they move. You see how they act, how they talk, how they interact. I saw Chris Mortensen mention today that they thought McAdoo had relational issues or something like that. Well, what the hell are you doing figuring it out now? You should have known it. You should have known it after your first afternoon with him. Something's not right with this guy. This guy, he's not my kind of guy. So it's on you 
John Mara, and Steve Tisch. This mess was your creation. It was an anger firing of McAdoo and Reese for not protecting them against themselves, and now they're going to hope that Ernie Accorsi will protect them against themselves and recommend someone who won't be a disaster. But when you hire Accorsi to be the consultant, it's going to be one of his buddies. It's going to be one of his friends. It's going to be someone he owes a favor to. It's going to be someone he can influence from afar. And the older we get and the farther removed we get from the positions of influence we once held, the more we desperately want to influence. And boy, that person that I got that job, he's going to owe me big time. And he's going to call me up and ask me for my advice all the time. And I'm going to be relevant again. That's the mistake. That's the error. That's the blunder that the Giants are potentially committing to only make this work. All right, third down. Let's talk about some happiness in the NFL. How about the Minnesota Vikings at 10-2? and two? Eight straight wins. I assumed their season was over when Dalvin Cook's ACL popped. Latavius Murray had shown me nothing in the first four games of the season other than a fumble week one, Monday night against the Saints. Jarek McKinnon, serviceable, had a touchdown yesterday in his return to Atlanta. He's from Georgia. He was extra motivated because they didn't believe in him when he was a kid, thought he was too small. McKinnon and Murray have done a nice job filling in for Dalvin Cook. They'd be even better with a healthy Dalvin Cook, though. Case Keenum has been an MVP candidate. What Case Keenum does, he buys enough time. Now, it's not Russell Wilson running around with a chicken with his head cut off, or like a chicken with his head cut off, as the case may be. It's more of, it's a, it's a hybrid of a controlled Russell Wilson and a little Tom Brady with that very smart movement, sliding, running, stepping, getting away from the rush, having an instinctive feel of where the rush is coming from, how to get away from it at all times, eyes down the field, finding the guy who pops wide open and getting him the football. How many times do we see a guy who is running around behind the line of scrimmage trying to evade the rush, and he doesn't see that one guy who's wide open? Every time that one guy is wide open, Case Keenum finds him. I don't recall many plays this year, and I haven't watched every snap every game. It's hard to do it at 1 o'clock Eastern on Sunday when there's nine games going on. But the big moments for the Vikings, Keenum finds the guy who's wide open. And you rarely have one of those plays where afterward the announcers are saying, well, if Case Keenum had only looked over to his right, he would have seen that Stephon Diggs was streaking down the field uncovered. Case in point, no pun intended. When the game was in crunch time and the Vikings were trying to run out the clock and the Falcons were using their timeouts and the Vikings faced another third down, the Vikings kept converting third and short, third and short, third and short like clockwork. And they put the other team in third and long and they clamped down on them like clockwork. But Adam Thielen was in the right slot and Keenum got the ball. And as soon as he got the ball, Thielen running a slant to the inside was wide open. So wide open, I thought, man, it'd be nice for them to cover Adam Thielen. And then they showed the replay, and he did. He just made a move that that left the defensive back in his tracks. Thielen wide open, and that iced the game. Big deal to go into Atlanta and win with Atlanta building momentum. 7-5 and five now are the Falcons. 10-2 and two are the Vikings. Technically the number one seed. Mike Zimmer, the coach of the Vikings, said today, that's for you guys to talk about. We don't care about it. See, the, the Vikings are in a rare and a very special kind of a zone. And it's, it's see, 
it's one thing to be in the zone for one game. It's another thing to get the zone to replicate itself week in and week out. This is a week-to-week, month-to-month zone for the Vikings where they're pissed off because people don't believe in them. The way that the coach is treating the quarterback is a microcosm of the way that the national media and the fans are regarding the Vikings. We don't believe in you. You're a team that we are assessing one week at a time, and you are in any given week one game away from making us all think, yeah, you sucked all along. That's the attitude Mike Zimmer has toward Keenum. That's the attitude everyone else has toward the Vikings, and that's keeping the chip on the shoulder. Kyle Rudolph explained that to me the day after the win over the Lions on Thanksgiving. Because I said, hey, t- yeah, yeah, what do you think? I always get a little nervous of this. When I have a theory, a hot take that I've been peddling, I always get a little nervous to run it by somebody who's in a far better position than I am to know whether or not it's accurate. So I was like, oh, boy, do I really do this? Do I really run this by Kyle Rudolph? Because he's going to say, you don't know what the f- you're talking about, Florio. Why, why did I agree to do this the day after Thanksgiving? Don't you realize I have other things to do than listen to your crackpot-ass theories? But he didn't, he didn't do that, to my great delight. Maybe he's just being polite. But he said that that's the attitude that the players have. We feel like, you know, people don't take us seriously. People don't think we're as good as we are. And it wouldn't surprise me if Mike Zimmer was doing a little that to Case Keenum. I think that's exactly what Zimmer's doing, and I think that's exactly what we're all doing. Even now, as I praise the Vikings, I, I still don't, I'm not all in. Here's here's as far as I'm willing to go in my assessment of the 2017 Vikings. That if they can hold the one seed, they can somehow win two home games and then lose to the Patriots at home in the Super Bowl. And wouldn't that be the worst possible outcome? 40 years, 41 years after the Vikings last went to a Super Bowl, to become the first team to play in a Super Bowl that your stadium hosts, your home stadium. There have been some close, but never a team in its own stadium. And then here come the Patriots and they beat you. And, and to make it even worse, it'll be an old school 32 to 14, 23 to 7 smothering. That's the thing that I think drives the old school Vikings fans crazier than anything else. They never were in a close Super Bowl. 16 to 6 was the closest. And that was a joke that it was only 10 points. That felt like a 70 point blowout masquerading as a 10 point difference. Because there was no way in hell the Vikings offense was going to do anything on that day at Tulane Stadium in early 1975. That offense was doing nothing against the Steelers defense. Not a damn thing. And you give Bill Belichick two weeks to figure out how to stop Adam Thielen, how to stop Stephon Diggs, how to stop Case Keenum, how to stop Latavius Murray. That That's where this one is going to end. Best case scenario for the Vikings, but still a lot better than anyone expected. How about the Baltimore Ravens? Since we're talking about purple teams, they're now 7-5. and five. They're now on their way, and they're now coming up against the Pittsburgh Steelers on Sunday night on NBC, a game that initially I thought should be flexed out of that spot. Lots of Steelers games in primetime in recent weeks. And the Ravens were kind of sluggish a couple of weeks, and it's like, uh, do we really want to see another Ravens-Steelers game? Yes, we do. Because the Ravens now are four games away from taking care of sufficient business to get back to the postseason. At Pittsburgh, at Cleveland, then two games at home to end the year. The Colts and the Bengals. 
The Bengals and the Ravens, a sneaky candidate for Week 17 primetime on NBC. You know, we always look for the NFL because they're the ones who make the call, but they look for a game where there are playoff ramifications that will hold through all of the games that are played throughout the course of the day. Give me a night game, last game, that winners in, losers out, a playoff play-in game. That's a sneaky possibility, Ravens-Bengals, depending upon what the Bengals do over the next few weeks. But I look at the rest of the way, 11-5, and 10-6, Ravens get in. Let me tell you something. If the Ravens get in and then they would go on the road to play like the Titans. I remember a Ravens team going into Tennessee and knocking off the Titans when the Titans were the one seed. I remember that nine years ago. Chris Johnson's rookie year. That was after the Titans had desecrated the terrible towel to get the one number one seed and the Ravens took care of business. The Ravens, I think, would be a dangerous team. That was John Harbaugh's first year as head coach of the Baltimore Ravens. That was Joe Flacco's rookie season with the Ravens. They're going to be a dangerous team. So you get them in a position where they go to the AFC West champion or they go to the AFC South champion. They win that game. And then they go to Pittsburgh or New England. Those two teams do not want the Ravens to show up because the Ravens have shown they can win in Foxborough when it counts. And they've shown they can win in Pittsburgh when it counts. And boy, that is going to be a potential complication on the road to this Patriots-Steelers AFC championship destiny game, which I think is destined to not happen. And I think the Ravens are going to have something to do with that. That's fourth down. All right, fifth down, and then I'm going to wrap it up. And I just want to say one thing about this deal that was apparently unveiled today during the NFL's media briefing. They had a con- I assume it happened during that conference call where – you know, they, they're declaring victory and they, they've got a deal in place. And the whole idea is to get players to choose to stand for the national anthem. And there's players who are calling the deal a farce and a lot of criticism for the fact that the deal doesn't. It, it, here's here's the, the problem in a nutshell. Whatever they're getting in return for standing isn't nearly enough. It's not. And that the players finally had the NFL over a barrel. And at some point, you have to be very mercenary about your power. And I think the dilemma for the players is we look like we're being greedy. We look like we're losing sight of the reason for our protests if we turn it into a leverage point and we squeeze the NFL for everything you can get. It's a tough spot for the players because you know what? The NFL would never never blink over the principle. Well, we don't want to undermine the principle that has caused us to take this position, baloney. They're going to they're gonna squeeze you every chance they can get. I don't think this thing's over. I think the end is coming at some point in the offseason. And the NFL is going to win this. And the NFL is either going to have the players stay in the locker room during the national anthem. I think, I don't know either. I think that's what's going to happen. I think the NFL is going to retreat to that. Once it dies down enough, Friday in June in the 2018 offseason, that's when we're going to find out that that this thing is over because the NFL has decided to do what all the colleges do. And they're going to do a better job of PR. They've done a horrible job of PR when it comes to, all due respect, this player anthem issue. It's like they're tiptoeing around on eggshells. They've been heavy-handed with the players ever since Roger Goodell became the commissioner. And on this issue... They are so afraid of the players because, see, I think they don't want the players to realize how much power they have. 
there hasn't been any type of organic change in the way that the NFL regards its players. It still views the players as robots. It views the players not as human beings. It views the players as property. It views the players as a constant stream of interchangeable parts, which are interchanged throughout the course of any given year, and definitely interchanged year in and year out, lather, rinse, repeat, over and over and over again. The names change. The people change. They are ultimately the pieces of machinery that go onto the football field and provide people with hours of entertainment. The NFL hasn't suddenly had an awakening on the road to Damascus that these are human beings that they're dealing with. They'll act like it when it suits them. This is about the NFL treading lightly because it doesn't want the players to fully appreciate the power that they have. Because the NFL, back in 2009, when they crafted this current policy, whichever lawyer wrote the policy, and one of the first things they teach you in law school. Now, look, I didn't go to an Ivy League law school, but the one I went to up the road from me here in Morgantown, West Virginia, one of the things it taught me, one of the most important skills for any lawyer is to innately know the difference between should and must, and to always be on the lookout when interpreting a statute, regulation, a rule. Look for the difference between should and must, because it means everything. Should means, or may, should or may, you're not required. Must means you must. It's mandatory. There's no, shall is the word that most often shows up. Shall and may are the two words that you see when you're trying to interpret what a statute means and what the obligations are when applying the terms of that provision. And that's critical here because whoever wrote, whatever Ivy League lawyer wrote that policy allowed the flaw to exist. Must be on the sidelines, should stand for the anthem. Was there a philosophical debate involved or was it just carelessness? Was it just incompetence? And has the NFL been paying for that incompetence for the last two years? To the point where the NFL is petrified that the players are going to realize how much power they truly have if they really want to push this, if they want to make it a week in and week out thing. That's why I think this thing has been so clunky and awkward and clumsy and the NFL is still searching for that that silver bullet that solves it once and for all. And I think some players, even though they may not be able to articulate it, they know something's not right. They don't quite know why. What is nagging at them? Russell Okung, Eric Reed. I mean, on the surface, it's, hey, Colin Kaepernick's still getting screwed. But I think deeper, the message is, you guys are giving something up for a hell of a lot less than you could be. And yet again, the NFL wins. The NFL always wins. And the one time the players have the NFL in a very tough spot, the NFL is finagling it in a way that it wins. All right. Those are the five downs. Let me see if we have any questions today. I will ask and answer a few questions. I have not pre-screened these, which can be good news or it can be bad news. It will be no news unless I find... Oh, 28 lurking. There are 28 responses. It's always right around 25 or 28. Let's see what we got. At Terry Gensler, T.E. Gensler 14, how does red zone viewership impact NFL ratings? Do they take it into account at all? You know what? I don't know. And the the windows, the early windows, because that's mainly when red zone is watched from 1 to 4 p.m. Eastern time on Sundays. Those aren't the big numbers that the networks are looking at it's the big games it's the 425 p.m eastern game it's the sunday night game the thursday night game the monday night game so I, I don't know the answer to the question but let me tell you if the nfl wasn't making money off of it 
If the NFL wasn't happy with it, they wouldn't do red zone. And if it was in some way negatively affecting the overall ratings, there's got to be a way that everyone who's watching red zone, that those numbers get funneled some way, somehow into the, the, the overall viewership numbers. They, they'd have to do it. Otherwise, they would not make red zone available for uh, the fans to cannibalize the NFL's ratings. At J.R. DeGraw, when are the Broncos going to fire Vance Joseph? I mean, assume it was it's going to come right after the season, if it happens. Now, the challenge is for John Elway to admit that he screwed up by hiring Vance Joseph in the first place. Because, just like we talked about with the Giants, you thought he was going to be the guy, John, and he's not the guy, John. So you're going to get rid of him, and you're going to go find another guy? And, and look how he's tearing through coaches from John Fox to Gary Kubiak to Vance Joseph. Wouldn't it be funny if Kubiak came back and coached the team? I, I don't rule that out. Isn't Kubiak back scouting for the Broncos? I, I don't I don't rule it out. I'm, I don't know anything about Kubiak's health situation. It was the work. It was the stress. It caused him to step aside. I wouldn't be surprised if Elway tries to come up with some way to craft the job so that Kubiak can do it in a way that meshes with his overall broader health objectives. It wouldn't surprise me if Elway tries that. And I don't know that. Haven't heard it. I'm just throwing a dart. And if it hits the board, so be it. If it uh, pierces your scrotum, I apologize. Or my own, then uh, I definitely got a problem. I don't know where that came from. I think of that line from Seinfeld all the time where George Costanza doesn't carry a pen in his pocket because he's afraid he's going to puncture his scrotum. So I, I apologize for the crass and graphic choice of word. <laughs> or maybe I don't. Uh, at Papa Timber 99 any truth to the rumor I just made up that Josh McDaniels is leaning toward the Oregon head coaching position? Sure, it's absolutely true. After getting dressed down by hashtag Tommy yesterday, he's probably looking for any way he can to get out of there. No, I don't do McDaniels, McDaniels, I think, is waiting for Bill Belichick to walk away. Because I think the best possible situation for McDaniels is to become the head coach of the Patriots. The question is, how much longer is Bill Belichick going to stay there? Back in March, Robert Kraft told me he'd like Belichick to coach into his 80s. Wants him to work like Warren Buffett does. Pete, Car- Pete Carroll said, why stop there? Because I asked Carroll about it in an interview at the league meetings right after Kraft said what he said. So who knows? Maybe it'll be time for McDaniels to retire by the time Belichick finally does. At all stats are made. What are the fallouts regarding Gronk's illegal hit? Should he received a long suspension? How will this impact similar situations in the future? Can a player ever be sued for something like this? Gronk faces short-term discipline, whereas the victim faces a long-term health impact. I, I've always been fascinated, all stats are made, a.k.a. Sean Newsom. I've always been fascinated by where the line resides between what you sign up for when you engage in a contact sport and what goes beyond that. I think of the Rudy Tomjanovich punch. Remember when Kermit Washington about killed him, right? Rudy Tomjanovich did not play basketball with the reasonable understanding that he may be cold-cocked and messed up the way that he was during that game. And the rules of normal society do not become suspended when you engage in a sport that involves some degree of physical contact. The question is, at what point does that physical contact go beyond the reasonable boundaries of sport? And I got into this argument 25 years ago with a buddy of mine when the Penguins first were doing well, and I don't know how we got into this, whether it's a, a slash of Mario Lemieux or a fight. We, we got down this rabbit hole of when does criminal or civil liability arise 
on a hockey rink because when you go out there and play hockey, you know you're going to get hit. You know you're going to get into fights. At what point does that line get crossed into something that society would frown upon and ultimately use the justice system in some way against you? And, and we found cases from other jurisdictions throughout the country, of Oregon and wherever, and there is a line. And it's almost a know-it-when-you-see-it type of a line. And I remember back when, we talked about this this morning on PFT Live, when Albert Hainsworth removed the helmet of Andre Garrod and shredded his face, shredded his forehead with a cleat. We had people, and this was early days of PFT, they were flooding the phone lines of the district attorney in Nashville demanding that Hainsworth be prosecuted. Because you do that out on the street, you go to jail. That was the point Rodney Harrison made last night about Rob Gronkowski. You dive on a person like that, unsuspecting, out on the street, you go to jail. At what point does it go beyond the normal expectations of the contact sport that you've signed up for? It's a fascinating question, and that's all I'm going to say about it for now. But at some point, you can sue. At some point, you can indict. At some point, you can go to jail for something that you do on a football field, on a basketball court, on a hockey rink. What Gronkowski did yesterday probably won't rise to that level. And a lot of it is driven by the ultimate injury. I mean, if you kill somebody doing that, you got a much more serious problem. And, and that happens a lot in the justice system, the actual injury that's inflicted. And you take the risk when you hit somebody in a way that violates their rights. If you kill them, you got a much bigger problem than if you just give them a concussion. Obvi- Captain Obvious, reporting for duty. At Gnome Sane Bra, oh God, do you know where my wife is? She went on a work vacation to Miami a month ago. She told me she'd be back in a week. I, I have not seen her. Sorry. Uh, good luck with all of that. I, and that's the thing. I'm just reading these things uh, as they come in. At Paul PJ5, how did we get here? The Giants are the most dysfunctional NFL franchise. And, and you know, I feel like the Giants have just been kind of teetering on the edge over the past several years, since winning their most recent Super Bowl, of becoming as dysfunctional as they now are. And here we are. And I don't think that their current plan to get out of the weeds is going to to work. Maybe it will. It's going to start with finding a new franchise quarterback. It could be that the Giants kind of flop around in the boat for a while as they try to figure out where they go from here. But they clearly screwed up by hiring Ben McAdoo, and now they move forward, and who knows where they go from here. At B Flow for sure, can you name a more underrated player than Larry Fitzgerald? He's now number four in receiving yards all time behind Randy Moss, Terrell Owens, and Jerry Rice. Absolute legend, catching half of those balls from scrubs. How about uh, how about Frank Gore, who's now number five all time rushing? The average football fan, you would tell the average football fan that Frank Gore is now the number five all time leading rusher, and they tell you shut the hell up. But it's true. And and Gore's postseason accomplishments are roughly the same as Larry Fitzgerald's. One near-miss Super Bowl appearance. Gore's actually done a little bit more postseason. But yes, very underrated because Larry Fitzgerald doesn't go out there looking for attention. He's always conducted himself that way. I remember at one point early on in his career, and I think it was because he played at Pitt, so I was looking for a reason to not like the guy because he played at Pitt. It's like, he's a big phony. And he's not a big phony. He's conducted himself with a, a very reserved demeanor, Shocking given when he came into the NFL. Look around in 2003, 2004, his rookie year. Was it 2004? It was 2004. That was the year Terrell Owens was was with the Eagles, and, and he was over the top and 
and and uh, Larry Fitzgerald was never that way. And I think that's one of the reasons why we view him as underrated. But he'll be a first ballot Hall of Famer, and who knows how much longer he'll keep going. Another question from, oh, come on, at one Jeff Nation, who does my hair? I, I th- That's all classified information, and it involves staples and uh, snaps. At BFLOFO Show, how do you watch games on Sundays, Red Zone, Sunday Ticket, 10 TVs? Here's what we have. We have a setup at NBC in Connecticut at the studio there where there are rows of desks that are layered, almost like a classroom setting, not a big classroom, but they're flat rows of desks where there's room to sit. You can set up your computer. There are... are, uh, uh, units there that I don't think any of us really use all that often where you can get audio of only one game if you want to just listen to one game. And there's a big wall that has all the games. It's like the Brady Bunch 9 box. And depending upon how many games, it's filled up. Some days there's actually 10 games going on at 1 o'clock Eastern, so they have other TVs on the side that carry those games. And it's just it's just sensory overload. And it, it, it took me a long time to get to the point where I could try to process that without losing my mind because you're always missing something. And then there's one person who, who will determine what audio is going to be piped out to the room. But, but that's it. And it's, it's, it's fun, but you always miss something. You always miss something. And uh, that's part of the challenge, catching everything that happens. And sometimes we'll see something in one game and they'll spin it back and we can watch it. We can study it if it ends up being a big talking point. Like yesterday, I think we happened to see the Gronkowski hit. We happened to be focused on that game when it happened. There are times where a big hit like that happens and we don't see it. So we, we have somebody point it out and then we look at it. And it's, it's, it's hard to get used to it. But uh, it's a great way to watch games. And I got Rodney Harrison sitting next to me, punching me and hitting me anytime he sees. He's got a skill for seeing a serious injury, a potentially serious injury. And it's amazing how many close calls there are, how many guys get twisted up in knots and they get up and they're fine. And it's a testament to their condition. It's a testament to the training and the the flexibility and everything these guys do. All right. I better I better wrap this up. Let's see what else we got here. Uh I took the under on 4.5 in Buffalo on Sunday. Thanks for the tips. I don't know what that means. Uh, I haven't heard much about the Bengals lately. Will Marvin Lewis be back next season since they play on Monday Night Football? Seems like a good question. Yes, it is a good question. And I remember a few years ago, Marvin Lewis was in the final year of his contract. His contract expired. And Marvin Lewis looked around and Mike Brown looked around and they decided to continue. Now, there's a belief that if they don't make it to the playoffs, Mike Brown's finally going to move on. But this is the challenge every owner faces. You get rid of the guy you have, who takes his place? Is it better to have the devil you know or the devil that you don't know? And Mike Brown is very comfortable with Marvin Lewis. The question is, at what point does keeping Marvin Lewis affect the business in a negative way? Is this the year where it's time to move on? If you're going to move on, who are you going to move on to? And how is that going to make it better? It's very easy to say, get rid of the guy you have. Unless you have a plan to make it better, you may regret making that change. And then you get yourself back into that mode where you're firing a coach every other year. So I I would advise Mike Brown, think carefully before you move on from Marvin Lewis. And I'd advise Marvin Lewis, think carefully before you move on somewhere else. And I don't know that there's going to be a line out the door to hire Marvin Lewis to be a head coach somewhere else. At Art Vandelay, after last night, who is the best team in the NFC? I mean, right now the Vikings have the top seed. But I look at the Cowboys, the Packers, and the Seahawks. One of those teams is getting in, and one of those teams is going to be hell on one of these unproven franchises, like the Eagles or the Vikings. And I think that's going to be a fascinating divisional round game or a fascinating conference championship game when the Seahawks, the Packers, or the Cowboys come up against a team like the Vikings or the Eagles. All right. 
skimming through here to see if there's anything else that we should answer before uh, I wrap this up. Did the Giants blow their shot at a Bro Cream sponsorship? Uh, but what the, listen, Bro Cream knows that's not your Bro Cream model. If anything, it enhances their shot. Maybe the, maybe that should be the main factor. Find a guy who, number one, wears a suit that fits, and number two, looks good with a Bro Cream hairdo. And then Bro Cream can become the official hair care supplier of the New York Giants. They can put a Bro Cream logo on their practice jersey. How about that? How about it? All right, one last one, Mike Barra, 33. Um, there's a question about this, this lateral from the Seahawks-Eagles game. I'm going to have to study this one a little more carefully because in real time, it looked like a lateral from Russell Wilson to Mike Davis. And then when they slowed it down, you can see that the point where it was released and the point where it's caught, it's not a lateral, it's a forward pass. However, it looks like it kind of knuckleballs where it initially comes out backward, but it then like loops back around forward. And Mike Barra 33 has a quote from the NFL rule book, rule three, section 22, article four. I have not yet verified that is exactly the language, but I will. It is a forward pass if the ball initially moves forward to a point nearer the opponent's goal line after leaving the passer's hand. And, of course, initially is the key word. I don't know. We'll find out. That'll be something that we take up either later this week here at PFTPM or at ProFootballTalk.com. Anyway, thanks for some of your time today. I went longer than I wanted to, as I usually do. Back at it for Monday Night Football. We are scheduled to be joined by Russell Wilson later this week on PFTPM and maybe even Philip Rivers. So it should be an interesting week. It's been an interesting season. Thanks, as always, for some of your time. If you like what you hear, subscribe to PFTPM at Apple Podcasts. Rate and review the podcast. Thanks, as always, for some of your time. Talk to you Tuesday. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.